Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, June 6, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before we start, I want to say a couple of words about last night. We had a um, an internet disruption here that affected all of our computers, mine and Melissa's. So I didn't realize I was offline for a, a good 15 minutes before um, Melissa finally brought it to my attention, before she finally got my attention to let me know. And the program was complete, and as far as all of the um, – information that we had to present up to where the program was terminated was what was indeed presented. I um, had to edit the the audio and I reposted the edited audio to TalkShoe and to Christogenia.org. We're going to have technical problems once in a while. I understand it. It's unfortunate that we do. It's just bound to happen when, when we're connected to TalkShoe and to the Christogenia streams remotely through a computer that's still in Panama City, right? So it's still at home. I I dial into my home computer and take control of it in order to do these programs. And if I wasn't able to do that, I would have to carry it around with me. I have a backup method that, that I could use for my laptop to do that, but it's just not as good as as my home computer it's not as convenient so that's just the way it is it's um that we don't have as much money as the jew bastards that rule the mainstream media so we 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 have to scrape and get by with what we have of course and and we do the best we can so there's nothing missing from last night's program we just did not um get the opportunity to complete as much of positive Christianity in the Third Reich as we would have liked, we will pick up from where we left off next week at the home of our dear friend and brother Clifton Emmerheiser, Yahweh willing. Tonight is part three of Esther, Fraud or Fable, because they're the only two choices. The book of Esther is by no means legitimate. We hope to have already established that many times in the first two parts of this presentation, this series of presentations. In the first part of our presentation, refuting the canonical status of the book of Esther, we showed that historically, the Esther narrative does not fit into the rule of any of the kings of Persia, from the earliest of them, from Syaxares, all the way down to the last of them, and the time of the coming of Alexander the Great. For the entire nearly 200-year span of the Persian Empire, we also presented textual evidence of the rejection of Esther by the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the sect of Judeans at Qumran. Additionally, we showed that the supposed events portrayed in Esther are impossible in light of the records of Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, and the minor prophets of the Second Temple period, which are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Then, in the second part of our presentation of the arguments against the veracity of the book of Esther, 
we began following Bertrand Comparé's sermon against the book. Doing this, along with Comparé, we pointed out several inconsistencies in the story itself, as well as several historically ridiculous situations which the book expects us to accept. Among the inconsistencies, and there are many, is the fact recorded both recorded by both the prophet Daniel and by the Greek historian Herodotus, that the kings of Persia were forbidden to change any laws or decrees which had been made before time. We also pointed out how the book of Esther itself, in chapters, I believe it's chapters 3 and 8, also alluded to or made that same statement. Yet in the Esther story, even though the story itself also informs us of this Persian custom, the king is seen making such changes which are impossible because of the custom. Among the historically ridiculous situations in the book of Esther, we saw that the king had issued a lengthy proclamation that all of the Jews throughout the empire would be put to death on a specific date, 11 months from the date that the proclamation was made. Yet there was no exodus and no uprising. Among the inconsistencies we pointed out, the story purports that only two months later, the king of Persia had apparently forgotten that he made such an important proclamation. Other aspects of the Esther story are just as ridiculous, such as the reverse proclamation made in the third month of the year, which is contrary to Persian law that such an, a reverse proclamation could be made in the first place, but the reverse proclamation that the Jews would be allowed to avenge themselves on their enemies in the 12th month of the year, nine months later. The Jews were therefore given nine months' notice, and their supposed enemies were given nine months' warning that the Jews would be allowed to kill all the Persians they wanted on a specific date. Yet, it is not yet evident in Esther that any of the Persians outside of Haman himself had been enemies of the Jews. But the king is portrayed as having given such advanced permission to the Jews to kill even women and children. And there are no protests recorded by any of the Persian people. Although the proclamation went out, to all the provinces of the empire nine months in advance to be announced publicly. We read in Esther chapter 8 from verse 9, Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is, the month Sivan, on the three and twentieth day thereof. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews, and to the lieutenants and the deputies and rulers of the provinces, which are from India unto Ethiopia, a hundred twenty and seven provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and unto the Jews according to their writing and according to their language, which is all just bullshit. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name, and sealed it with the king's ring, 
and sent letters by posts on horseback and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life. Well, there's nobody threatening the Jews except Haman to destroy, to slay, and to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, even though the order for the people to kill the Jews had already been rescinded, and to take them, to take the spoil of them for a prey. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all the people, and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves of their enemies. I'm sorry. Later on in the story, as we are told, the Jews, allegedly or supposedly, this is really just a, a fantasy story, the Jews killed tens of thousands of people, including women and children. And they even killed 800 people in the king's palace itself, which would ostensibly include many people from among the king's own friends and family. Yet the king approved of such an act. It was a great idea, and no protests were recorded by the Persians. And, and of course, no, none of this is recorded in history anyway, so it's just a, a, another sick Jewish fantasy. The Esther story is patently ridiculous, and not only contrary to all of the records of Scripture and history, but contrary to reality itself. Here we shall present the balance of Bertrand Comparé's sermon on the book of Esther with further notes and commentary of our own. It amazes me that any Christian pastor, and especially any identity Christian pastor, would accept this book. Yet, six years ago, I sat across the table from the great impersonator from Chicago, the rabbi that claims to be an identity pastor, and he argued with me that this book was a legitimate book and that he would debate me in that regard. When I readily accepted his challenge, the debate never materialized, although he made many subsequent remarks in support of the Esther story, and although we had done perhaps 150 podcasts together after that time. In truth, only a satanic Jew could love the book of Esther because it's a big lie, and it depicts the wanton killing of white men, women, and children. Only a satanic Jew could love this book. Now we shall return to Bertrand Comparé's sermon on the book of Esther from where we left off, and without further ado, from part two of this series several weeks ago. In due time, Comparé said, in due time, the 13th day of the month of Adar arrived, and the Jews began a wholesale massacre of the Persians. Compare is in probably chapter 9 of the book of Esther, or thereafter, who for some reason or other put up no resistance, not only out in the various towns of the province, but in the king's palace itself. The Jews came in armed with swords and raged through the corridors and rooms of the palace, 
butchering the king's servants in the king's own palace. And the first day, according to the book of Esther, in the palace alone they slaughtered 500 of the king's officers and servants in his palace. So at the end of the first day, the king finds out that all this commotion had gone on in the palace and 500 of his own officers and servants had been killed. And he expresses his delight, how fine this was, and asks Esther, well, how is the slaughter going on in the provinces? She tells him, fine, blood is flowing in rivers. Well, what else would you like? The words of the king in Compare's little um, supposed dialogue here, Compare's conjectured dialogue. Well, what else would you like? Then she said, I would like to have another day of slaughter ordered, the 14th of Adar, tomorrow. Fine, that is the way it is to be. So on the 14th day of Adar, the Jews massacred 300 more the king's officers and servants in his own palace. And let me interject that the book of Esther doesn't record how the people in the provinces which are pretty far away. I mean, these, they didn't have telephones in these days. They could only transmit messages on horseback. They did have a Pony Express system, but they're not getting more than 30 or 40 miles in one day. How would they find in the provinces on the 13th that the king extended the slaughter to the 14th? That's another glaring inconsistency in the Book of Esther, which Compare really didn't point out. But Compare goes on to say, so on the 14th day of Adar, the Jews massacred 300 more of the king's officers and servants in his own palace. That is, 800 of his staff who had been slaughtered in his own palace. And they slaughtered other people throughout the kingdom to the number of at least 75,000 people that the Jews had slaughtered and stolen all their property. So the book says that the 14th day of Adar was made the Feast of Purim. And here Compare sarcastically characterizes the dialogue between Esther and the king, which is recorded in Esther chapter 9. The characterization, however, is appropriate, and the narrative which the book itself presents is just as ridiculous. Compare continues by saying, suppose you read that in a magazine, Suppose your 10-year-old child read it in a magazine. Do any of you have a child so feeble-minded that he could believe there was some element of truth in this? Even if he didn't know ancient history, even if he didn't know Oriental customs, could he be duped by anything as absurd as this? And yet you are told in your churches to believe this because it got in your Bible by a process I am going to tell you about. Because of the time it was written, and because of the circumstances of its origin, and because of the many discrepancies in it, such as I have mentioned, this book was not accepted among the Jews, or more properly, the Judeans, for somewhere around two and a half to three centuries. When it was written, cannot be fixed with exactness. It is found in a copy of the Septuagint, that is, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, which was begun roughly around 300 B.C. in Alexandria, 
And it is found in a copy of the Septuagint, which cannot be dated earlier than about 160 B.C., but all through the rest of the B.C. period, better than a century and a half. And for practically the first century A.D., no Jew would accept this fable as being inspired scripture. It was a well-known work of fiction. As I said, nowhere in it does it mention God, meaning in the Hebrew versions. Nowhere does it speak of prayer for deliverance or prayer of thanksgiving. Compare is perhaps assuming that there were copies of the Esther story in the first Septuagint manuscripts which is not necessarily true. First, the oldest surviving Septuagint manuscripts cannot be dated any earlier than the 3rd century AD. These are the famous codices, such as the Sinaiticus, the Alexandrinus, and the Vaticanus. Esther is found in all of these copies, but they don't date to any earlier than the 3rd or even the 4th century A.D. The oldest known Greek translations of Scripture are probably, the oldest known which we actually have found, are probably those found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now we know that the Septuagint was translated before the Dead Sea Scrolls were written, but we don't have any of those copies of the Greek. The only copies of the Greek we have are from a much later period. So the oldest known translations of Scripture which we possess are probably those found among the Dead Sea Scrolls where there is absolutely no support for Esther, but instead there is proof that Esther was either unknown or refuted. And then after the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest known copies are found in Josephus's Antiquities, which may, if they are not an in interpolation, Esther might be an interpolation in Josephus. We don't know that. We don't know that it was definitely in the original because we don't have the original manuscripts. If it's not an interpolation, then it dates to the first century A.D. Compare is correct that the writing of Esther cannot be determined with any exact certainty. But we will show that the date of the writing of Esther can be determined circumstantially. First, as a digression, we have already discussed some of the lengthy additions which are found in the Greek manuscripts of the book of Esther, which are not in Hebrew. Among these, we find inserted after verse 13 of Esther chapter 3, a supposed copy of the letter ordering the death of the Jews allegedly written by Artaxerxes himself at the, or Ahasuerus himself at the behest of Haman. Then we find appended to the end of verse 4, I'm sorry, to the end of chapter 4, a very lengthy passage describing in a very exaggerated manner the prayers of Mordecai and Esther on the plight of the Jews in Persia. There is also a very lengthy version of chapter 5, verse 1, which is not found in the Hebrew. In addition to these, 
we find another very lengthy portion inserted at the end of Esther chapter 8, which is another alleged letter from Artaxerxes in which Haman, now considered a criminal, is portrayed as a treacherous Macedonian. And the orders concerning the extermination of the Jews in the original letter at the behest of Haman are reversed by the king. We believe that Haman's being portrayed as a Macedonian, we believe this portrays these interpolations as a product of the Hellenistic period. From the time of Philip of Macedon and his conquest of the other city-states of the Greeks, Macedonia was a threat to the borders of the Persian Empire and had therefore become a political enemy which could be demonized in Persia. Now, that dates the additions to the Book of Esther, but doesn't quite date what we would consider to be the Hebrew text of the Book of Esther, if those additions are really additions. Maybe that was the original book, and maybe the Jews cut out all the references to God. It, it's, we really can't tell exactly what happened to such a story one way or the other when we have two diverse versions of it and no original manuscripts of either one. In Esther chapter 8, after the king is portrayed as having issued the proclamation allowing the Jews to kill all of their enemies, we read this. From verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day, and many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. And of course, that phrase, fear of the Jews, is reminiscent of John's words in his gospel. John chapter 7 is the first time it appears, I believe. There was another place in Esther, which is found in the gospel. There was another phrase in Esther, I'm sorry, which is found in the gospel, where the king in Esther is several times portrayed as promising Esther anything she wants, as much as half of his kingdom. The only other place I could ever recall seeing such a phrase is where Herod lusts over his own daughter, as it is portrayed in Mark chapter 6, from verse 22, where it says, And when the daughter of the said Herodias, the wife of Herod, came in and danced and pleased Herod, and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it to thee unto the half of my kingdom. So the phrase seems to reflect the product of the lustful Edomite heart. But beyond coincidence, and more importantly, the spirit of Esther is absolutely contrary to the spirit of Ezra and Nehemiah, who are supposedly from the same period of time. Both Ezra and Nehemiah 
soundly rejected the idea of converts to their religion, where the narrative in Esther rejoices over such converts. Neither did the Maccabees of the first book of Maccabees make any converts. The first book of Maccabees stops short with the rule of John Hyrcanus, who came to the leadership of Judea from 134 B.C. until 104 B.C. It is during the rule of John Hyrcanus that the idea of converts to Judaism, both forced and voluntary, was put to practice. You could read every word of 1 Maccabees. There is no talk of converts to Judaism, and that book ends in 134 B.C. In 134 B.C., John Hyrcanus comes to rule Judea, and from there on, we see this idea of converts. It's John Hyrcanus, according to Flavius Josephus, who had gone out and conquered all the cities of the Edomites, and in the past, the Maccabees had run the people out of those cities, but John Hyrcanus converted them instead and forced them to become circumcised. And as Josephus says, from that time forward, they were known as Jews. And it's not only the cities of the Edomites, but many other cities, as we have pointed out in our Romans chapter 9 presentation some months ago, it was many other cities as well which contained Canaanites and Edomites and people of other races, that the Maccabees, under the time of John Hyrcanus, had forced to convert to Judaism and who became, quote-unquote, Jews. So this idea of conversion that we see in Esther was rejected by Nehemiah. It was rejected by Ezra. It was rejected by the Maccabees of the Book of Maccabees, but after 134 B.C., it became the policy of the Judeans in the time of John Hyrcanus. I think that the idea was developing a little earlier and came into fruition during the time of John Hyrcanus. But the earlier Maccabees were still destroying or running off rather than converting the people of the cities they had conquered. The spirit of Esther is very agreeable to the time of John Hyrcanus and the late 2nd century B.C., where somehow that idea of converts to Judaism had become popular. And at this time, it shouldn't even be called Judaism because it's still really Hebrewism, but it's still the religion of the Judeans, and we use the term Judaism in that sense, as the ancient Greeks actually used it. From the second century looking back, the, the religion that the Jews practice in the Talmud is not Judaism. It's not the religion of Judah. It's not the religion of the Judeans. To call it Judaism is to perpetuate the lie of the Jews. From the second century looking back, a writer with a fuzzy interpretation of history can justify Haman's wickedness by claiming for him a Macedonian origin, since the Macedonians had become the enemies of Persia in the Hellenistic period from the time of Philip of Macedon. But they were not a threat. The Macedonians were never a threat 
until at least the time of Philip in the late 4th century, and the threat was not entirely serious until the rule of Philip's son, Alexander the Great. From the 2nd century, which is the time of John Hyrcanus, a writer who wanted to promote the idea that the Hebrew religion was easily open to converts, would want to create a historical narrative that would support such an idea, and Esther certainly fulfills that purpose. But the narrative in Esther is not historical. Rather, it is sheer propaganda. Esther was a race mixer who would have been scorned by Ezra and Nehemiah, if indeed she ever existed. And of course, she did not. Somebody sat in the second century BC and made this story up. Further, we find that there is a curious note at the end of the Greek manuscripts of Esther, which mentions Ptolemy and Cleopatra. The additions to Esther mention Ptolemy and Cleopatra, which of course must, have, must be from even later in the Hellenistic period. The reference must be to that Cleopatra who had ruled jointly first with her father, Ptolemy 12, Aleches, and then with her brothers, Ptolemy 13 and Ptolemy 14. She outlived them all. She probably killed them all. And finally by herself until she was defeated by the Romans at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. So I would seriously entertain the proposition that Esther was written no earlier than the rule of John Hyrcanus in 134 BC, and possibly even as late as the time of the first King Herod of Judea, which also corresponds with the time of Cleopatra. So Esther was written sometime between 134 BC and the time of the king called Herod the Great by the Jews. Herod the Edomite is how he should be referred. Now we shall return to Compare. And he says, at a later time, oh, the book had been in existence two centuries at least. Well, maybe. Some of the Alexandrian Jews wrote what you will find in some copies, a part that is not in most of our Bibles. They were the last few paragraphs telling how the Jews had offered prayers of thanksgiving to God for their deliverance and for the loot they stole. Now, do you think that even the Jews would have dared to add another chapter to Isaiah or Jeremiah? No. Remember that through all this period, the scribes were so careful in copying the manuscripts of the Old Testament on every line they counted the number of words, and then they counted the number of letters on that line. And when they made a new copy, they checked it. Did it have so many words containing so many letters on that line? They did this to make sure that there would not be inadvertent errors in the copying. But here, they add what you might say is practically a last chapter to the book of Esther, showing that the Jews themselves did not regard it at that time as being holy scripture at all. 
And here Compare uses the additions to the end of Esther as an example, while we have seen that the Greek copies also contain several other additions throughout the rest of the manuscript. It, it really adds up to maybe four, five, six chapters. At any rate, Compare says, the thing went on until about the end of the first century AD. Now you remember the Jewish rascality became so intolerable that the Romans couldn't put up with it any longer. And the Roman general in charge of Syria and Palestine, which is a reference to Vespasian, whom Compare does not name, marched with his armies to capture Jerusalem. And of course, the Jews shut the gates against him. And so he threw his army around the city in a siege ring. But then the emperor at Rome died. And who was to be his successor? His own army said, you are the best qualified for emperor. And if necessary, the army will make you emperor. So he dropped the siege of Jerusalem and hurried home, and he was made emperor. Now, now this is true, kind of, but Compare really oversimplifies it. There were four emperors in practically one year. It's called the year of four emperors. There were four emperors in a very short time, starting with the death of Galba, 68 AD, I believe, who was successor to Nero. And after Galba died, Otho ruled for about six months and was killed and supplanted by Vitellius, who ruled for three months before he was forcibly deposed with the coming of Vespasian from Palestine. Vespasian established an order which would be passed on to two of his own sons, Titus and then Domitian, who died in 96 AD. Vespasian also became the patron of the, the Judean historian Flavius Josephus, who took the name Flavius from the family name of his patron Vespasian. Compare continues. His son Titus resumed the siege of Jerusalem in the year 69 AD, while his father's in Rome, of course. The siege lasted about a year, and in AD 70, the Romans captured Jerusalem. You will find this all written up in great length in the course of Josephus' history, the antiquities of the Jews, and the wars of the Jews, and in both cases, I would write Judeans. When the Roman armies came in, of course, the people fled from the country and all the smaller cities that couldn't be defended into Jerusalem, which had massive fortifications and could possibly be defended. So you might say that all the Jews in Palestine were cooped up in Jerusalem. During the siege, they engaged in savage fighting among themselves. More of them were killed in their own fighting in Jerusalem than were killed by the Romans. But their total losses from their own internal fighting, from battle losses against the Romans, from famine, and from pestilence were about a million, according to Josephus, as Compre is probably repeating Josephus' figures. The rest of them were captured by the Romans. The Romans sold some of these Jews for slaves. They couldn't get much of a bid for them, because who would pay good money for a Jew slave? Did you ever get honest work out of a Jew? And this is Compare's own sarcastic conjecture. The Romans drove out the rest of them, drove them out of Palestine, and forbade them to return under penalty of death 
And that's also an oversimplification because that really didn't happen for another 60 or 70 years until the, um, the Quito's War and then the Bar Kokhba re- revolt had, had both passed and, and transpired. It, it was at least 50 or possibly 60 years after that the Jews, the Judeans, the Jews were really run out of Palestine. And by that time, they could be called Jews because according to the Gospel of Christ, at least most of true Judah had converted to Christianity and lost their identity as Judeans, where the Edomites and the other mixed races who would reject Christ, as we are told in the Gospel, they are the remnant of Judeans who became known throughout history as Jews. And the great bulk of them moved on north into the huge city that was then known as Byzantium, which later became Constantinople. And that's true to a great extent, but not completely. It's a little oversimplified. Here was a huge city with very well-established commercial institutions. So here was a place where the Jews, instead of working, could go into business and make money. And you know, business is business. And this is Compré's own sarcastic conjecture. But by this time, the characterization fits the nation of the Edomites, the, the nature of the Edomites of Judea, and most but not all of the remaining Judeans of this time were Edomites because as true Israelites converted to Christianity, they lost their identity as Judeans. After the fall of Rome, after the Jews were driven out, some of the Jewish rabbis began saying, well, this book of Esther, which talks about Jesus murdering, I'm I'm sorry, which talks about Jews murdering thousands of people and stealing all their property. This is our kind of scripture. And you may say that pretty close to 100 AD is the first time that any Jews started talking, taking the book of Esther seriously. And Josephus took it seriously if we believe that it was in the original manuscripts. And Josephus probably wrote, Antiquities of the Judeans between 70 and 90 A.D. 70 A.D. when he was taken to Rome by Vespasian. In the Talmud, you will find that Rabbi Simeon ben Lachish, who lived about 300 A.D., says, the book of Esther ranks next to the law in holiness and importance. And their great rabbi, Maimonides, who lived during the Middle Ages, said this, although the prophets will pass away when Messiah comes, the book of Esther and the law will remain. If you look up the book of Esther in the Jewish encyclopedia, you will find they do not take it seriously. And I quote word for word from the Jewish encyclopedia, the Jews' well-known skill in transforming and enriching historical narratives was applied to the book of Esther. And, of course, it's not even historical. Now, let us see what we can find out. When we analyze this, first of all, you remember the name which has been anglicized into Esther was Hadassah. Where does it come from? 
It is the Babylonian Hadashatu, Hadashatu, literally the bride, which was the name of a Babylonian pagan goddess. No doubt you all remember that Ishtar was the Babylonian goddess of sexual intercourse, corresponding to the Roman Venus. And the Syrian form of Ishtar was Esther. Good, honest scripture? No. And that ought to be a giveaway in itself. But let us look further into this thing now. And before we continue, we have to state that while Compré was confused about Esther being a transliteration or a translation of Hadassah, it wasn't. We have seen already that instead Esther was a second name for the same woman, Hadassah. But while Compré was confused about that, he is right about the meanings of both of the names. Hadassah comes from a Babylonian goddess and a word which means the bride, and Esther, the name Esther, comes from Ishtar, and is actually the same word which gives us Easter, which is a fertility, an ancient pagan fertility festival. Comparate continues with Mordecai. Mordecai is not a Hebrew name at all. It is a Grecianized form of the name of a Babylonian god. Remember that in these ancient languages, it was customary early to write the consonant letters, not the vowels. And when at a later time they began writing the vowel letters in two in different places, you didn't always have the same vowels used and get the same pronunciation. If you will take a present-day London Cockney, a New England Yankee, and a Southern white man, they all speak the same English language. Sometimes I can't tell, but they don't pronounce it the same, do they? And yet the ancestors of all of them spoke identically the same English when they were living in England. Now, similarly, with these other languages, you find some variations in pronunciation in different places and in different centuries. So this Babylonian god is mentioned in your Bible, sometimes with the name Marduk, sometimes with the name Merodach, and it represents those variations in pronunciation. But it is talking about exactly the same god. So Marduk, or Merodach, the Greeks called Mordecai. You remember that Esther and Mordecai were cousins. If you go into the Babylonian pagan legends, they tell you that Marduk and Ishtar were also cousins, and that is true. And Compare is also correct here in equating the names Mordecai, Marduk, and Merodach. Sometimes in Scripture I believe he's called Evil Merodach, which is the name of a pagan idol. Marduk, or Merodach, was the high god of the Assyrian pantheon, and he was also adopted into the Babylonian pantheon. There is apparently, however, one other Mordecai mentioned in Scripture in Ezra chapter 2 and in Nehemiah chapter 7. It's the same man in, listed in two places because each of those places is a list of the returnees from Babylonia who had come earlier with Zorobabel to build the second temple. So there's one other Mordecai in Scripture. It is plausible that at least some of the Judeans had adopted pagan names in captivity. But that does not mean that the Mordecai of the Esther fable 
actually existed. It, because there's one other Mordecai listed in Scripture, that does not mean that the Mordecai of the Esther fable is real. Now, what about Haman, Compare says? After the pronunciation, alter, I'm sorry, alter the pronunciation very slightly from Haman to Human, and you have the name of a Persian pagan god. The king's wife, Vashti. Vashti was the name of a Persian goddess. The name of Haman's wife, Zeresh, is a slight corruption of Karisha, which is the name of another Persian goddess. So the whole story of the book of Esther is a slight change and embroidering of the Babylonian legend about a conflict between Babylonian gods and Persian gods, in which the Babylonian gods triumphed over the Persian gods. Remember, the Jewish encyclopedia says, the Jews' well-known skill in transforming and enriching traditional narratives was applied to the Book of Esther. There were Persian deities named Homanos and Homodatis which were mentioned by Strabo, the geographer. And the connection of these Persian deities to the Haman and Hamadatha of the Esther tale. Hamadatha was the father of Haman in chapter one of the book of Esther. Was mentioned first by a German scholar named Winkler. It is certainly not a coincidence. So this Homanos and Homodatus certainly were Persian deities. And they were certainly the models for Haman and his father, Hamadatha. So Compare is right to a point that this is a, a, a tale. Esther represents a tale adopted from some sort of legend about a conflict between certain gods, certain of the pagan idols. While the name Vashti has been imagined to be from one of several possible sources, it does seem to be derived from a Persian word. Now, the Midrash in the Talmud, the Midrash asserts that Vashti was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar II, who was eventually married to the historical Xerxes. And that makes for a nice story, unless you actually realize when these men lived. Because Nebuchadnezzar II died in 562 BC. And that incredible tale would make her at least 100 years old when she was considered beautiful by the nobles of the Persians. So this straw groping by the Talmud only further discredits the Esther story. It's just bullshit. The whole story is just bullshit. Back to Compare. Now let us look at it again. The book of Esther tells you the kingdom was divided into 127 provinces. But all the historical records show that there were 20 provinces and no more. The book of Esther, and we're going to address that momentarily because Compare is wrong there. It's just 
it's he was just mistaken, and we'll explain how. The book of Esther says that the Jews were scattered and dispersed throughout all the provinces of the kingdom. Now, this was not true during the period of the Persian Empire. You remember that Alexander the Great, on his great world-conquering expedition across Western Asia, overthrew the Persian Empire. Alexander started in 331 BC, and his whole period from then on to the end of his life was 11 or 12 years. I forget which. Alexander died at the end of that period, and his kingdom, you remember, was broken up into four pieces, with each of his four principal generals taking over one part of that kingdom. So when the Greek period started, with Persia and Babylon governed by this Macedonian Greek general and his descendants, during that period, you did have, it is true, some scattering of the remaining Jews who had not come home from Babylon back to Palestine. Of course, we shouldn't call them Jews at that time. They are Judeans or Judahites of the tribe of Judah. The Greek historian Herodotus lists 20 satrapies of the Persian Empire. And all of the nations generally included in each of those satrapies, which had contributed soldiers for the war effort against the Greeks at the time of Xerxes, 490 to 468 BC. However, it cannot be ascertained that the 127 provinces of Esther are the 20 satrapies of Herodotus, or whether each satrapy had several provinces within it. This later scenario seems to be true because we read in Daniel chapter 6 that it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. So we see that the 120 divisions of the kingdom existed in the time of Daniel, in the time when the Persians at first conquered the Babylonians. So 127 provinces of Esther are actually pretty much in line with the 120 princes of the time of Daniel, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them and the king should have no damage. So esteeming that Daniel is accurate, Compare's criticism here is unfair. But of course, that gives no credit to the Esther fable, simply because that aspect of Esther might be correct. That doesn't mean that the book is a historical book. We've proven here many times that Esther is certainly not historical. It is a fable or a fraud. Compare simply went a little overboard criticizing it. Of course, there were Israelites in various parts of the Persian Empire at this time, such as diverse tribes of Scythians and the Parthians, but none of these were Jews. There may, however, have been Judeans around Babylonia, in Susa, and in certain other places. The Persians had permitted those of the Babylonian captivities of several nations to return to their original homelands if they so desired. However, this argument by Compare is more or less superfluous. 
to continue with Cabre, he says, about 536 B.C. was when the Medo-Persian Empire overthrew Babylon. So the Persian Empire there lasted, you might say, from 535 B.C. to 320 or 318 B.C., a little over 200 years. I would, if I had to exactly call it, I would say that it lasted from 539 to 320, but it's not really that important. In that entire period, it was not true that the Jews were scattered throughout the provinces. The Macedonian-Grecian period of rule lasted until Rome took over, and you remember the first appearance of the Book of Esther that we can trace is no earlier than 160 B.C. Now, I cannot determine where Compare ever saw such a manuscript which is as old as 160 B.C. I don't know where he's getting that from. I can't find any Esther in any manuscript before Josephus had written about 90 A.D. And it's apparent that the Greek additions to the book of Esther were written before 31 B.C. and possibly as early as the period of John Hyrcanus from 134 to 104 B.C., I can't imagine that the conditions and the circumstances in Esther happened before the time of, what were written before the time of John Hyrcanus because of the attitudes that the book of Esther reflects. They seem to reflect the universalist period of Judea, which began in the time of John Hyrcanus. So Compare is right about the dating. The book was almost certainly written after 160 BC, but I don't know where he, he saw a manuscript that old because I don't know of the existence of any Greek manuscript of Esther which precedes the great codices, the Alexandrinus, the Sinaiticus, or the Vaticanus. It's, it's that simple. Uh, it's Compare may have had manuscripts I never heard of, but uh, I... Um, I find that unlikely. Compare continues by saying, now, another thing to indicate something about the time of writing is the language. If somebody came to you all bubbling over with excitement and said, I have just discovered a manuscript of William Shakespeare, a brand new, never published play by Shakespeare. Oh, it must be Shakespeare. See, it is signed with his name. So you take the manuscript and you start to read it, and it is not written in the archaic language of Shakespeare's day. It is written in present-day hippie slang. Are you going to be convinced that Shakespeare wrote it because somebody put his name on it? It couldn't possibly be his. The language has changed too much in the meantime. All other languages, while they were living languages, have undergone that same type of change. The approximate period, say, within a century, one way or the other, the approximate period of writing ancient books can be determined by the way the language is used, by the vocabulary that is used. And the Hebrew in the book of Esther is at least as late as anything in the Old Testament, as late or later even than the book of Malachi. It shows strong Aramaic tendencies. And you remember, into about the last century B.C., Aramaic was taking over in place of Hebrew as the common, commonly used language in Palestine. And also, Greek influences are very common in it. 
It was written definitely during the Greek period, and Compare is right, and we can demonstrate that, as we have here, in other ways. As I said, when Alexander died, his empire was broken up, one general took over Persia and Babylon, and another took over Syria and Palestine. So it was during that period of Greek rule in Palestine that the Book of Esther was written. Another curious thing, of all the people mentioned in this Book of Esther, not one of them is mentioned in any known historical record, and not one of them is mentioned in any other book of the Bible. Going back to the language of it, by the way, there are a great many words in the book of Esther that are not used anywhere in the Bible outside of Esther, but they are rabbinical words that are found to be commonly used in the Talmud. As I said, the names of these people who are supposedly nobles of the Persian kingdom, none of them are Persian names, but they are all Babylonian names. Now, I must interject that Aramaic was the lingua franca of both empires, the Persian and the Babylonian, which preceded it. And all of the names in the book of Esther are Aramaic names. Even the names of the Persian nobles are Aramaic names. Even the names of Haman and his father, Hamadatha, they are Aramaic names, even though the additions to Esther try to say that Haman was a Macedonian, and that was for clearly political purposes. The Haman character, the Hebrew name of Haman, is an Aramaic name. The Persian nobles in the king's court in the Esther story, all ten of them, have Aramaic names. They don't have Persian names. These names were just made up by some Aramaic storyteller, and Compare is absolutely correct in that regard. The fact that all of these people have Aramaic names is certainly very odd and absolutely inconsistent with what one may expect from a historical viewpoint. Some of the things Compare has discussed here and is about to discuss, we have already commented upon at length in the earlier segments of this presentation, and here we will not repeat our comments. We may interject a few things, but we won't repeat them. He says, Mordecai's ability, which we've already spoken of at length, Mordecai's ability to go into the king's harem every day is something that was never known in any oriental harem either in the past or in Oriental countries today. During the Persian period, an official decree that was proclaimed was not translated into the languages of the different provinces, ostensibly 127, right? The Persians had no doubt whatsoever that they had conquered this territory. They were the bosses, and anybody living there had better find out that the Persians were the bosses. And when the Persians put out an official decree, it was in the Persian language, and you had better get somebody to translate it for you. The Persians didn't bother doing it. But the Book of Esther says that these proclamations, first to slaughter the Jews and then to slaughter the Persians, were translated into the different languages of the provinces. So that is another thing never historically known to have occurred. And actually, the official decrees were published in Aramaic and Persian, and also sometimes in Akkadian, and that's because Akkadian 
was the lingua franca of the Assyrian Empire before the Babylonian period, which only ended about 70 years before the Persian Empire began. The Babylonians only had it in the meantime, in the interim period, for about 70 years. And, and Aramaic was the lingua franca of the Babylonian and Persian empires, so the official decrees and the official diplomatic business was done in Aramaic. There are many inscriptions that are Aramaic and Persian, and there are many inscriptions which contain those two languages and Akkadian, which was the language of the Assyrian Empire before them. Some have speculated, to continue with Compare, some have speculated that the king mentioned might have been Xerxes. And, and we see that Xerxes in the seventh year of his rule was standing on the shores of Greece watching his navy go down in flames. He was not back in the palace at Susa yucking it up with some Jew whore. He just wasn't that man. Xerxes could not have been the king of Esther. It's that simple. It's impossible. Even though Xerxes was identified as the king of Esther by many Jewish so-called scholars, by many early Christian writers, he simply could not have been the king of Esther by any means. Some have speculated that the king mentioned might have been Xerxes. Well, they do that on this basis, that Xerxes was a man of reckless and irresponsible disposition, even for an oriental monarch. And therefore, he might perhaps have been the kind of man to weather vane in every direction like this, meaning to change his mind every moment, as the king and Esther does. But history records, first of all, that his queen was named Amestris, not Vashti. History does not record that she was ever deposed. And the best historical records we have on the subject by the great Greek historian Herodotus, called the father of history, records that the Persian law, by Persian law, the king could only choose a wife from among the seven noblest families of the Persian nation, not some Jewish pickup. And Herodotus is accurate in that aspect because when you study the reigns of all of the subsequent Persian kings, they all did. They may have had many consorts. They may have, may have not consorts, many concubines. They may have had many concubines. They may have had many secondary wives. But their queen was always from among the noble Persian families. Always. Haman's long toleration of Mordecai's insults was something that is never common in the Orient, either in the past or now. The queen's, in, the queen's inability to send a message to her husband has never been known in either ancient or modern history in the Orient. In fact, the Esther tale in that respect is also ridiculous. In Babylonian pagan lore, the 13th month of, day of the month of Adar was unlucky, the 14th day, however, was a lucky day. So the unlucky day for the Jews, when they were to be massacred, was changed, and on their lucky 14th day, they completed the massacre of the Persians. Now you find this curious fairy tale fable in your Bible today. How and when did it get there? What was the attitude of the Christian church when they were from 17 to 19 centuries nearer that time than we are today? 
Well, there was no early Christian church that ever accepted the book of Esther. The Syrian Christians rejected it. The once very extensive Christian sect, the Nestorians, never read it in their Old Testament. One of the early Christian writers, Melito, writing about 170 AD, does not list it in the list of books which he says were accepted as scripture. Origen, writing about 225 AD, does not mention it among the books accepted by Christians as scripture in his day, and Copper is wrong about that, unfortunately, and we'll get on with that momentarily. For four centuries, the Greek Christian church rejected it. You remember that the Catholic Church adopted as its official Bible the Latin translation by Jerome. Now, when Jerome was undertaking to find what his books were to be accepted as authentic, what books were to be accepted as authentic for the Old Testament, he said, well, what did the Jews accept? That is the primary standard, and that's Compare's simplification. And you remember that it wasn't far from 400 AD when Jerome did this. By that time, of course, the Jews were whooping it up with the, with the utmost enthusiasm for the book of Esther as being the most authentic of all the books in Scripture. It told about Jews murdering people and robbing them. So Jerome put the book of Esther, translated into Latin, into his Bible, and the Catholic Church accepted it. I'm sorry, I needed a drink. In fairness to Jerome, he was not the first Christian who was suckered into accepting the Esther account. However, Esther is not mentioned at all in many of the early Christian writers, and Compare is right about that. And that's a good sign that the book was not accepted by those writers. But the canon, which seems to have prevailed, is nevertheless associated with Alexandria, but it predates Jerome. Here we shall repeat what we had written concerning this in the first part of the series of presentations against Esther. We will reread two paragraphs, and we wrote, among the so-called church fathers, the book of Esther was apparently accepted by the second century Clement of Alexandria. Certain writings in the works of the third century origin notice the different versions of Esther, but in other places in his writing, he accepted the story. In one of those places, Origen, who was also from Alexandria, had also confused the Jews of Esther with Israel, where he mentioned the story in his commentary on the Gospel of John. So Compare was mistaken about Origen's opinion of Esther. The 4th century writings of Lactantius, a Roman of North Africa, who converted to Christianity late in his life, accepted the Esther story. And he thought the Persian king of the story was the famous Xerxes. Lactantius received his Christian education from Arnobus of Numidia, another Christian apologist who had some clearly Gnostic influences. Therefore, he had Alexandrian influences. We do not find any mention of Esther in the numerous early writings of any other early church fathers, including Tertullian, 
Irenaeus. I could not find a mention of Esther in any of those, in any Justin Martyr, in any of the other truly early church fathers. Eusebius repeated, Eusebius accepted the Esther story as canonical by 325 AD, and he repeated it from Origen and ostensibly from Clement of Alexandria, all of the people that did accept the Esther story seem to have come originally from Alexandria, where Christians from the rest of the empire don't mention the Esther story. So it goes back in Alexandria quite some time before Jerome. The book of Esther, as I wrote in part one of the series, I'm adding to it, right? The book of Esther, which seems to have been promoted by the Jews, is often said to have made its way into canon, into the canon of the still future Roman Catholic Church when Jerome, translating the Hebrew scriptures into Latin in Alexandria, included the book in his Vulgate. Bertrand Compare, whose own sermon on Esther we shall incorporate into this short series, made that mistake. However, Eusebius, a hundred years before Jerome, had included Esther in the list of Old Testament books which he had compiled from origin, and certainly had also approved of the book. So the inclusion of Esther among canonical books predates Jerome, but nevertheless leads back to the Judeans or Jews of Alexandria. The book is, however, included in the three oldest of the great uncial Greek manuscripts, the Codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus. All of these are from the 4th and 5th centuries. Now we shall return to Compare, who did very well but made some mistakes. He was only human like the rest of us. How do we who are Protestants have it in our Bible? Well, you remember that for many centuries, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, was also the church in England. And when they finally split up, it was over the high moral principle of whether a divorce should be granted to King Henry VIII. The Church of England, the Episcopal Church, decided that Henry VIII should be granted a divorce and the Roman Catholic Church would not grant it. So... That was the high moral basis for the Reformation in England. It did not have the basis of the Reformation under Martin Luther, which was on matters of principle and doctrine. Up to this time, the Church of England differed from the Roman Catholic Church on just two main points. First of all, they would grant Henry VIII the divorce, which the Roman Catholic Church would not. And secondly, they did not recognize the Bishop of Rome as having any more authority than any other bishop. Aside from that, their ritual was the same. <clears throat> like the Catholic Church, the Church of England believed that the people who came to church should not be allowed ever to find out what was in the Bible, because if they ever found out, they would learn the priests were not telling them the truth. So the Bible was kept in Latin, which the priests could read, and none but a very few scholars among the people were able to read Latin. When finally the real Reformation began developing in England, to the point where English translations began to be made, the Church of England burned to death several of the early English translators. This was heresy. They were printing the Bible in English. When finally it was accomplished, 
what Bible did they have to work with? They had the Latin Bible that the church used, plus a few manuscripts in Greek and a very few Hebrew in some of the monasteries. The Book of Esther, having first gotten into the canon of accepted books through Jerome and the Catholic Church, roughly about 400 AD, became a part of the Latin Bible and continued in down to the time when the Protestant churches split off from the Church of Rome. Now I think you will agree with me that the Book of Esther does not belong in your Bible. And we will conclude with Bertrand Compare here. Most of Compare's critique of the Book of Esther is very good. And we believe that we have been able to go even far, far beyond that to discredit the book with all certainty. In the historical details and all the other circumstances which we have offered here in our three-part series. The Book of Esther certainly does not belong in the Bible, nor does it belong to any historical narrative. It is pure fiction, and it is an outright fraud to incorporate it into the Holy Scripture. It is pure bullshit. However, we cannot agree with what follows. The last four paragraphs of Compare's sermon on the book of Esther, as it is popularly transcribed, contains a criticism of the Song of Solomon. In those paragraphs, Compare asserted that the Song of Solomon does not belong in Scripture. We must correct the record. The Song of Solomon certainly does belong in Scripture. But Compare did not realize that the story was not actually about Solomon and his wife. Rather, the Song of Solomon is an allegorical love poem illustrating the husband-wife relationship between Yahweh God and the children of Israel as his bride. If we could have shown Compare the allegories of the Song of Solomon, which cannot pertain to any sitting queen, but certainly describe the Israelites as a nation, we are certain that we could have changed his mind about the poem which represents the greatest love story ever told, that of Yahweh's love for the nation of Israel as his bride. So we will not present these final four paragraphs of Compare's sermon on the book of Esther here tonight. They do not pertain to Esther. They pertain to the Song of Solomon. And sadly, Compare was mistaken about the Song of Solomon. But in the near future, and with the will of Yahweh God, we shall present Compare's remarks, and we shall present the Song of Solomon and demonstrate both the nature of the writing and 
its importance to Christians one evening in the near future. Thank you for listening. I will be here next Friday with Positive Christianity in the Third Reich, Part 3, and Yahweh willing, I will be here next Saturday with Clifton Emmerheiser. Thank you, and good night. Praise Yahweh.